Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Today, we are going to seek to finish this chapter and we'll be halfway through the book. Back when I was playing sports a long time ago, uh, I purchased a pair of soccer cleats that I was really excited about. They felt good. They looked good. And in the first practice, I made my first cut and all the cleats on the bottom promptly snapped off. I thought, what in the world is wrong with these things? I figured I got a bad pair, and so I exchanged them out for a new pair. And in the very next practice, the very, next thing, uh, the very same thing happened again. And I concluded those cleats were not very useful at all. They weren't how, what, what good are cleats that are just like tennis shoes? On the other hand, a few years later, uh, in, it came into fashion, a pair of pants that I'm sure many of you probably may even still own, those cargo pants. Remember those? I'm not sure why they fell out of fashion, because they were useful. I mean, pockets everywhere for everything you'd ever want. And I even had a couple of pairs that were incredibly useful, because they zipped off at the knees and became shorts, too. I mean, talk about useful we look at things in our lives as useful or unuseful. It's kind of how we judge them, right? Things that are unuseful, we throw away, unless you're a hoarder. And things that are not useful or things that are useful, we hang on to, we value, we keep. Well, in our last text, Paul challenged Timothy and all pastors on our role and on our duty in our position. But now as we end chapter 2, uh, Paul broadens out again and addresses the church as a whole. And in this section... He instructs us how, and he challenges us to be useful Christians. Christians that are useful to God. What is a useful Christian and how can we be one? Well, let's look at our text today. 2 Timothy 2, beginning in verse number 20. Paul writes, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. As we examine this text, it's my goal today to draw our attention to two important aspects of the text so that we all might become Christians who are useful to God. Now, up to this point, uh, I've assumed that you desire to be a useful Christian. I've assumed that, that that's what you actually want. However, we see in this text, I really probably shouldn't assume that. And as a result, the first aspect of the text I want to bring to our attention is the need to desire to be a useful Christian. We need to desire to be useful to God. This is verses 20 and 21. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay, some for dishonorable or some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, 
set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. There's two important things we need to note from these two verses. First is that the church contains both useful and unuseful Christians. He says that in every great house, there are two kinds of vessels. And in any large and affluent household in the Roman Empire, there would be a lot of different jars and dishes for various purposes. Some were really nice and some were not so nice. And Paul calls them honorable and dishonorable. Honorable vessels were those that were generally made of gold and silver. They were beautiful, and, and because of their use and their beauty and their value, uh, they displayed the wealth of the owner. They displayed the status of the homeowner, and they brought him honor. Uh, much today, like we view fine china, Right? We, we put it out there for everyone to see, and on one, uh, important occasions, we bring it out and actually use it. And as soon as it's done, we shine it back up and put it back up for display. But like today, you, you don't, they didn't use gold and silver vessels every day, right? Fine china is not for everyday use. Growing up, if you grabbed your mom's fine china for your, your afternoon lunch to put a sandwich on, uh, you quickly learned that the fine china was of more value than you, right? It was the same way in Rome. Instead, they used wood and clay vessels for everyday use. So they were cheaper, they, uh, but they were also breakable. So if they broke, well, it's no big deal. They weren't a big deal. And also because they were cheaper and breakable, they would be used for things that were uh, distinctively uh, dishonorable. Uses that uh, were not things that you would look at as really um, great. Some things like carrying water, but other things like carrying out the trash or even discarded human waste. They use these. And, and often they would actually just throw the vessel away with whatever was in it. They didn't keep it and try and clean it. It was dishonorable. They were done with it. Kind of like we use paper plates today. Well, Paul is talking about the fact that these vessels were common, plain, replaceable, unattractive, and often dirty and vile. And as a result, uh, they were often kept out of sight as much as possible. To display that would be dishonor to the homeowner. And Paul is using this as a metaphor for Christians in the church. And we'll press that metaphor forward in the next part. He's saying that in the church, there are both useful, honorable, and unuseful, dishonorable Christians. Those who are faithful and those that are not. The honorable, the faithful vessels represent useful believers. And the ones, they're the ones following the challenges that he placed at the beginning of the chapter that we've looked at already. These are the ones who are the good soldiers, the, the faithful athletes, the hardworking farmers spiritually, the ones who are growing in their walk with God, mentioned in verses 3 through 6. The dishonorable Christians are the distracted soldiers, the, the cheating athletes, the lazy farmers, Christians distracted and defiled by the things of the world fit only for the most dishonorable purposes. And the implication is that both kinds of Christians are found in the church, honorable 
and dishonorable. And just as honorable and dishonorable vessels are found in the home, so honorable and dishonorable Christians are found in the church. There are Christians in the church who claim to be good Christians, but whose activities reveal that they are dishonorable, unuseful Christians. Well, how can one be sure of being a vessel for honor? How can one be sure of being a useful Christian? I mean, perhaps you're not as young as you once were. You wonder if God can use you anymore. You you just don't have the energy you used to have. You don't have the health you used to have or the physical strength to work for the church. You don't have the mind or the, the hearing to be able to lead in the church. How can you be useful to God? Perhaps you think you're not smart enough. You aren't a book reader. Sometimes you struggle to follow the train of thought as you listen to the teaching. And you wonder, how can I be useful to God? Perhaps you feel overwhelmed by the busyness of life. You work nonstop or you're running the kids to their various events. I mean, you're trying to stay up to to date with the chores of the house. and, And finally, at the end of a long day after the sun, long after the sun has gone down, you just collapse into your bed, hoping to fall asleep so that you can just do it all again tomorrow. You're overwhelmed by the chaos of life. How can you be useful to God? Well, the answer to our usefulness for God does not lie in our physical abilities. The answer does not lie in our mental abilities. The answer to our usefulness to God does not lie in our time constraints. No, the answer, as we will see, is holiness. God uses holy Christians. Only Christians who cleanse themselves are useful. That's the second thing we need to note from these two verses. Only Christians who cleanse themselves are useful. He says in verse 21, Therefore, because of this, because there are both honorable and dishonorable, useful and unuseful Christians in the church, because of this, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. John Stott said this, No higher honor can be imagined than to be an instrument in the hand of Jesus Christ, to be at His disposal for the furtherance of His purposes, to be available whenever wanted for His service. Who are those people that are useful, available, usable by God? Well, he says they are the ones that cleanse themselves word cleanse means to clean out completely. It actually has a prefix on the word that emphasizes it is a thorough cleaning. It's not the cleaning that your child does when you tell them to go clean. It's the cleaning that you do when you're doing spring cleaning. Thoroughly cleaning it out. The Christian is to cleanse himself completely from everything that is dishonorable. All the sins of the world in his life. All the things that draw our attention away from Christ should be cleansed from our lives. Then the Christian will be set apart as holy. He'll be sanctified for holy use. You see, purity, holiness, or, or righteousness 
that purity of belief, that purity of life is the essential condition of being useful for God. It's not your physical abilities. It's not your health. It's not your time. It's not your money. It's not your mind. It is your life. Your heart for God being holy and cleansed. Those who are most useful to God will find that there are bad and unuseful, unhelpful practices, attitudes, and ideas that they have to avoid. That they will not be involved in because they want to serve God. Paul's building on the trustworthy statement that he made that we looked at last week. That ended with the statement, verse 19, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Psalm 119.9 puts it this way, How can a young man cleanse his way and keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. God uses the people who are living according to the word of God. He says, then they will be ready for every good work. Ready, prepared, always made ready. Now, it's interesting, that word, they will be made ready. It's a passive phrase. God will make you useful. You don't make yourself useful. God does this. And this is where reality moves away from the metaphor. You see, a cheap dish will always be a cheap dish. You can't turn wood into gold or we'd all be rich, right? But God can do that. God can enable the Christian to grow in holiness, to move from dishonor, unusefulness, to honor and usefulness. He makes us ready for every good work. And this is our calling as Christians. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, where we're told that by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. But we forget often verse 10. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are called to be useful Christians, ready for the good work of God. But how does that happen? If we have the desire to be a Christian who's useful to God, how exactly is that accomplished? I, I want to be useful, but I, I just don't understand how. Well, let's now turn to the second important aspect of the text I want to draw your attention to. The method to becoming a useful Christian. How do we get there? This is verses 22 through the end of the chapter. He says, so, in order for this to happen, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will." Here we find two important commands and contrasts by which we become useful Christians. How do you become a useful Christian? Paying attention to these two commands and contrasts. The first one is this. Flee youthful desires and pursue godliness. 
Flee youthful desires and pursue godliness. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure pure heart. The word flee, it calls for a continuous action, a habit of life. I am going to run away from youthful, that which pertains to youth, passions or strong desires. What, What are these youthful passions he's talking about. Now, immediately, perhaps because of your upbringing or the translation you're using, our minds often immediately move to sexual lusts. Flee youthful lusts. You know, some translations translate it that way. And so we think, run from sexual perversion. Well, and that is indeed part of what is referred to here. However, if we stop there, we'll miss much of what is being said. Youthful passions could refer to sensuality that's particularly susceptible, we're particularly susceptible to in youth. But the contrast that Paul is about to make actually doesn't refer to any kind of sensuality at all. So while it certainly includes the reality that we're to flee from sex not contained in the marriage union, This phrase refers to much more than that. Youth, what is youth marked by? When we think of youth, the passions of youth, well, youth can be marked by partiality, intolerance, half-heartedness, laziness, or arrogance, thinking more of themselves than they should, hot-headed answers to people who disagree, arguing about the mundane, foolish things, impulsiveness, Youth are very impulsive, rashness, thoughtless acts. All of these are symptoms of youth and immaturity. Now, we understand that these aren't confined to the young. We all battle these youthful tendencies, but people who are marked by them, we see as immature. They're acting like youth. We could summarize them in the categories of pleasure, power, And possessions, these are the attacks of Satan on humanity, the go-to attacks. We see them even on Christ in Matthew 4, right? Where Satan came to Jesus and said, you're hungry, command that these stones be made bread, pleasure, fulfill, gratify your flesh. We see him tell Jesus, throw yourself off the cliff, the angels will Catch you if you're really God. Demonstrate your power. He took him to the top of the temple and said, See all the kingdoms? Worship me, I'll give them to you. He wanted to give him possessions. This is the go-to attacks of Satan. Sadly, some of us wave these immaturities like a badge of honor. We kind of rejoice in the fact that I've never grown up. I'm just a big kid. Isn't that great? We laugh that we're immature. We consider those who have grown up as no fun. But these are the things that make us useful Christians. We rejoice, perhaps, that we don't take anything seriously. We're cut-ups. We value our play over everything else. We just want our toys. Or we don't have any kind of ability to think deeply. But the reality is we are, called, we are told to flee those things. Flee them. These, youth, youth, these youthful passions are actually dangerous to your soul. 
We're not to come to terms with them or even to negotiate with them. We're not to linger in the presence of immaturity like Sodom did or like Lot did with Sodom. We're to flee from them, run from them, turn our back. We're to get as far away from them as possible, as quickly as possible. Indeed, we're to pursue the opposite. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. When he refers to righteousness, these are those ethical demands placed on the believer by God in his word. We're to pursue God's commands in Scripture, not run from them, not try and manipulate them, but long to obey them. We're to pursue faith, the consequences of our faith. Really, faithfulness is the word here. We're to pursue being faithful to God. We're to pursue love, but not the love of the world, the erotic love, but the agape love of God. The focus is on the welfare of the one loved, not on self-gratification or self-fulfillment. Love is not based on the attractiveness or the, the worthiness of those who are loved, but on their needs, even when they are most attract, unattractive and unworthy. We're to pursue peace, that inward calm that comes in spite of the outward storm, that calm that is indicated by our ability to live in peace with our fellow believers, not contentious, not always arguing, not always having to make sure that everyone else is right and agrees with us, but content to live in peace. We're to pursue these things alongside our fellow believers. Interestingly enough, he says, pursue those with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That phrase, call on the Lord, is adopted from the Old Testament. It's, it's a designation that was used often in the early church referring to fellow believers, fellow Christians. This implies that these traits he's talking about, and, and notice these traits, they're, they're also stated in Galatians 5, and there they're called something else. They're called the fruit of the Spirit. We're to pursue this fruit of the Spirit of righteousness, faith, love, and peace these are best developed whenever a Christian stays in the company of other believers. In other words, they are best developed in the context of the local church. So, inside of this command to flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness is the reminder that we are to do so in the context of and with the help of our fellow church members. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. I'm a Christian and I love God. I just don't love his church. I just don't have anything to do with the church. I can grow better apart from the church. That is a lie from Satan himself. Growth happens in the context of fellow believers. Church is the environment where growth happens. Why? Because you become like your companions. Proverbs 13.20 tells us, Whoever walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. So to this end then, the second command in contrast is that we are to avoid foolish controversy and pursue peace. Avoid foolish controversy and pursue peace. He says in verse 23, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant 
controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He says that we are to avoid foolish and ignorant controversies. The word foolish is an interesting word. It's the word that we get the English word moron from. It means stupid. It's referred to the person who has not gained the ability to think, not learned to think critically. They're just stupid. So this have nothing to do with stupid controversies. This have nothing to do with ignorant controversies. This is a word that means without discipline or without training or, or literally un educated, uninformed controversies. He talks about these people in 1 Timothy 1.7 when we looked at that several months ago. These people desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They keep trying to teach, but they have no clue what they're talking about. He says, have nothing to do with those kinds of speculations. Now, Paul's not saying that Christians should not have intelligent, probing conversations and discussions about God's word, but rather Christians should avoid useless wrangling over unimportant or uneducated or cursory questions that divide and confuse. We must cultivate a judgment that can distinguish between those two things. We need to educate ourselves in how to study the Word of God properly so that we can know what is important. So that when these uneducated arguments come up, we can immediately dismiss them with, with the realization that they don't know what they're talking about. As they bring up that text and try and use it as a proof text for what they're saying, we look at it and say, that doesn't mean what they think it means. So I dismiss it. Ephesians, this is so that, as Paul said in Ephesians 4.14, so that we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Because you see these stupid, uneducated controversies, they only produce quarrels. He says they produce. That word produce actually means give birth to. They birth fighting. They birth striving. Paul tells us that the only sane approach is to refuse to have anything to do with them. We don't engage them. We don't argue with them. Because as the old saying goes, you can't fix stupid. Now, as we'll see in a little bit, you can educate it. We'll see how to address it. But he says that you refuse to have anything to do with it because you become like your companions. Here's a vital and important point for us to understand. Your companions matter. One wise man told me often, be friends of many and companions of few. John MacArthur says it this way. Sin is contagious. 
An association with openly sinful and shameless people is morally and spiritually dangerous. You see, being a companion with a hypocrite leads to moral and spiritual contamination. We see this throughout Scripture. Proverbs 13.20, as we saw, whoever walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In Jeremiah 15.9, the Lord challenges Jeremiah If you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. In other words, you should be the one who attracts to godliness, not pushing towards ungodliness. If they join you, that's fine, but you don't go join them. Be careful of who your companions are. We ought to be friends of many. We're not talking about shutting ourselves in or being unfriendly. We're not talking about being obnoxious. You're evil. I want nothing to do with you. That's not what we're talking about. We ought to be friendly and friends. But what we're talking about is who do you spend the most time with? Who are your closest friends? Who are your companions? Because you will be like them. Often I hear Christians say, they've just been my friend for so long. I know they're awful and they're wicked, but I'm hoping I can change them so I'm spending every moment of every day with them. And I hate to break it to you, but that's never what happens. You throw a rotten apple into a barrel of apples. Those apples don't turn that rotten apple good. The rotten apple turns the barrel bad. The reality is we must be careful of who our companions are. Or be willing to limit your time with bad friends. It's okay. Particularly if these bad friends claim to be believers. They claim to be Christians. It's okay to say to them, I can't spend this time with you because you are not obeying God and it's harmful to my soul. If you want to obey God, my door is always open to you. But if you're not going to obey God, I cannot be your companion. You see, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We ought to be be willing to limit our time with bad friends. Don't be drawn to them. Don't make excuses for them. Don't keep making them your companion. Again, if they are drawn to you, that's what should happen. If they are trying to become more like you, that is great. But you should not be turning to them. If you stand for God, you'll be as his mouth. They'll turn to you. You shall not turn to them. Instead of becoming their companions and engaging in the controversy, he is to avoid that controversy. We're to avoid foolish and ignorant quarrels. Have nothing to do with them. Instead... We treat people gently. Now notice the opposite of avoiding these quarrels is not to become quarrelsome. The the opposite of avoiding the quarrels is not to correct them strictly, to demonstrate where they're wrong in anger, to come down on them, to rip them apart, to burn them on social media. 
That's not the opposite. What is the opposite he lays out? Gentleness. He says, we are instead not to be quarrelsome. We're not to be quarrelsome. Instead, we are to respond to them, correcting with gentleness. The end of verse 25. We're to pursue peace, be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. In other words, he's echoing Romans 12.21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul narrows back down here to the Lord's servant. He's referring again to the pastor. But the reality is that we're all called to serve the Lord. And so these traits, with the exception of one that we'll see, should be true of all of us as we approach ignorant and foolish controversies. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He is to be kind gentle, affable, easy to speak to, approachable in demeanor, not irritable, intolerant, sarcastic, scornful, not even towards those who are in error. Kind. Are you kind? Are you someone who is kind to those who disagree with you? Are you someone who is kind to those who put forward stupid, uneducated statements? Or are you the type that responds with sarcasm, anger, bitterness, and wrath? Next one is for the pastor, and that is he is to be able to teach. Skillful in teaching them the right way. Skillful in instructing them where they're wrong. Educating them so that they might not be foolish and ignorant. Third, patiently enduring evil. Again, for all of us, we need to learn to patiently endure evil, being ready to put up with it. said this at times to folks and to, at times to my own self when I've needed it. Sometimes it's okay to let the other person be wrong. Right? Sometimes the youth, the youthful passion says, they can't be wrong, they have to admit that I'm right. But sometimes it's okay for them to be wrong. And to let them be wrong. Patiently enduring evil. Patiently enduring the attacks that come because you would dare say that they're wrong. How dare you not agree with their evil? And as society degrades and as Christians go along with the secularism that is taking place where evil is becoming good and good is becoming evil, we're going to have to put up with the evil that is put towards us telling us that we're the ones who are evil, we're the ones who are hateful and spiteful. Gentleness. What do you mean marked by gentleness? The word actually means meekness or humility. Not know-it-alls, but leaning on the one who knows all. Humility. Not leaning on our own arguments, but leaning on the Creator. Humility. Finally, correcting them with humility. That means actually to train by discipline, to instruct them as you would a child. And all of this is with the goal that the one who is unusable, that use, unusable Christian will repent and come to understand the truth. He says, 
God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The goal is not to burn them so that they feel stupid, but the goal is to help them learn the word of God so that they might grow in maturity, that they might come to repentance and understand the truth. Now, repentance is not a common word for Paul. We see it often in the Gospels with Christ, but not often in the Pauline epistles. But it is common throughout Scripture. It indicates a change of mind, a a turning toward the knowledge of the truth, understanding that's a foolish and ignorant thing I was doing, and I'm going to go to the truth. But repentance also demands a change of attitude and behavior in line with those demands. It's not just changing my mind. It's also demonstrating that, that change by the way that I act and the way that I live. Why? So that they may understand that their foolish questions and unholy lifestyle have actually been tools of Satan. So that they may escape the snare of the devil. Literally, he says they've been captured by that snare. I know some of you set out traps to capture the animals on your property, right? And, and you make it look good. When I was working high school and college, the area that I was working was overwhelmed by squirrels. So we had live traps that you do that you set out. And how did you trap them? You put a little peanut butter on the plate. And you opened it up and that drew them in. Little did they know that thing that they thought was so good was a trap. And they'd touch it and doors would drop and now they're stuck. This is what happens so often to unuseful Christians. We're snared by the devil. And the goal is for us to respond towards those people with gentleness and graciousness and the word of God so that they might recognize that they've been snared by the devil. They may understand that they've been tools of Satan trapped and so we gently respond hoping hoping that they'll escape Satan's snare. You see, a useful Christian is a holy Christian. A useful Christian is a righteous Christian. A useful Christian avoids youthful desires. He's not marked by sensuality or greed or immaturity or impulsiveness or rashness, but instead is marked by righteousness and faith, love, and peace. He's committed to the church. He's committed to the Word of God. He doesn't see church as optional, but as central to his life. He pursues these things alongside the fellow believers. And further, he avoids foolish controversies. He rightly studies and handles the word so that he can know what is truly important. He values the kingdom of God more than he values the kingdom of man. And instead instead seeks to pass on what he's learned from the word of God with patience and gentleness so that others will grow in their walk with God. In short, your usefulness as a Christian is not tied directly to to, to your, your physical abilities. Your usefulness as a Christian is, is tied directly to your personal walk with God. Are you walking in holiness? You know, just because you're older and you can't do the things you used to do does not make you unuseful to God. Because it's not about that. It's about your character. 
You see, through righteous character, through your righteous character, God is turning people to the truth and growing them in their relationship with Him. Just because you're young and doing a lot doesn't mean that you're useful. Just because you're not highly educated does not mean that you're unuseful or unqualified to be used by God. Because God confounds the wisdom of the world with the foolishness of God. He uses uneducated people. You look at his 12 disciples filled with the uneducated. He cares more about the character than about the qualifications. You can be useful to God. But it does require work. How can a man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to God's word. You see, useful Christians are holy Christians. Are you concerned more about your spiritual walk with God, about your relationship with Him and your commitment to the local church, or are you more concerned about your physical things, your health, your house, your toys, your job, or even your family. Christ said, no man who turns his back on, who does not turn his back on these things is qualified to be his disciple. Only those who turn their back on those who value God more are worthy to be his disciples. They're the ones that he uses. So, what are you willing to give up for the cause of Christ? Do you care more about your character or about everything else? Let me give you five so what's. Again, I hope that you take these, all these things and apply them very specifically to your own life. But let me give you five things perhaps that will spur your thinking. One, guard your heart by studying and obeying God's word. If you want to be useful, you need to guard your heart. You need to avoid stupid and ignorant controversies. And they are everywhere. And frankly, there are some going on in our congregation right now that are not useful and unhelpful. How do you avoid it and how do you know it? By studying God's word and obeying it. Learn how to study it. Come on Wednesday night. We're going to teach you how to study God's word rightly so that when you hear foolish and ignorant arguments, you'll know that's a foolish and ignorant argument. Number two. Value spiritual maturity by fleeing youthful passions and pursuing the fruit of the Spirit. The longer one. Value spiritual maturity. How do you do that? You flee youthful passions and pursue the fruit of the Spirit. Don't hold up your immaturity as a badge of honor. It's not. It's not. Number three. Avoid and ignore Stupid arguments. Avoid and ignore stupid arguments. I've been asked, how do I respond to these people on social media that are saying these things that are just, they're just dumb. How do I respond? Let me give you a secret, okay? There's a button that helps you do that. You know what it is? The power button. Off. That's it. That's what you do. You read the stupid argument, you go, that was dumb. Off. You avoid it. You don't have to engage it. You don't have to bring it to light. You ignore it and let it die from being ignored. Number four, respond with grace and gentleness to everyone. 
Respond with grace and gentleness. You don't answer those things by saying, wow, you're stupid. How can you be so dumb? I can't believe you actually believe that. No. If you do respond, you respond with gentleness and grace. You considered this text of Scripture. You considered the context of what you're saying. The Word of God is saying, I don't think it quite means what you think it does. Here's the context. Here's how it works. So they maybe they'll repent and see they're being used as tools of Satan. And finally, most importantly, pursue holiness. You have to value it. You have to value being a Christian who is useful to God. See, the problem in his, his great book, The Hole in Our Holiness, Kevin DeYoung makes the comment, why is it that so many Christians don't have holiness in their lives? It's because we don't really want it. We don't actually value it. The problem with holiness is that many of us don't really desire it. We must pursue it with everything we have. And then, then we'll be useful Christians, ready for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that you have given us instruction in your word, that you have not left us wondering how we ought to respond or what we ought to do or what we need to be in order for you to use us. But rather, you have given us everything that you need so that we can walk with you, be usable for you, and one day hear you say, well done. Lord, help us to live for the kingdom to come. Help us not to be distracted by all the affairs of this world, but to keep our eyes focused on you, to understand the gospel is the answer to everything. And help us to live in holiness, to value your church and your people, that in all things you might be made to look as good as you really are. We do love you. In Jesus' name, amen.